0: the best things you can do for your kids is make sure they know what it is we believe before they're 19 and moving out. The number two reason uh, that kids are leaving the church today is I don't like my church's position on matters of LGBTQ plus sexuality. Let that sink in, parents. It's the number two reason And here's why. TV commercials are normalizing that kind of behavior. They're going to school with friends who might be actively choosing those lifestyles. Which means they're meeting real people. And guess what? A lot of these real people who they're meeting, who who are, are identifying this way, they're not horrible people. And when they don't know what the church believes, they might go, why why does my church not like them? Which is a a broken question because it's it's not about like. See, here's the reality. TV commercials, I mean even children's TV shows, I I said this a couple of weeks ago, Paw Patrol uh, announced its first transgender or gender fluid character. Your, your kids are having these things normalized in TV commercials, in, in uh, TV shows, at school, um, in just about everything you can imagine. And so if, you're, if your attitude is, um, well, I don't have to talk about this, I would encourage you to to maybe reconsider that. If you think, well, we'll just we we trust the church. We know the church's position on uh, on sexuality, and we know that this series they've assured us is a is a biblical uh, uh, perspective. And it is a biblical perspective, by the way. Just so you know what what we're what we're this video series that we're showing the youth and providing to you as well. Uh, they're, they're teaching explicitly that the only appropriate sexual expression is between one man and one woman inside the boundaries of marriage. We're not tinkering with that. I think where it's going to make most people, I was talking about this last Sunday night, um, there's, there's kind of two elements of of this series. What we think, and, and I think nobody's going to be caught off guard by that. And, and then there's how, how we live, how we engage people who might... Uh, believe or act or live in ways contrary to how we believe. That's where I think a lot of us are going to get challenged, because I think a lot of us haven't really thought through how do we engage people who are identifying by by these lifestyles. And if last week's trailer where they said, whether you identify as uh, gay, straight, whatever, um, don't don't worry, we're not tinkering with any lines there. The, The reality, though, is that there's people who identify as those things. And and, and, and we want people, no matter how they identify, to understand that there, uh, there is a God and, and, and He knows us and He defines us. But um, my encouragement is um, and whether it's this series or not, maybe you don't need this series, and that's okay. But parents, or whether you have kids in the youth group, or whether you have kids one day you're going to have to talk about these, these matters with, make sure you're prepared and make sure you're not silent. And, and make sure that you're equipped to not be awkward as well, to be able to have these normal conversations with your kids and to, and to talk about things that matter. And so... Um we were kind of just a little surprised because of how, uh, how big of, of response there's been to things like this in the past. I think this is super needed in our culture and in our world uh, today, so I'm just uh, going re- to re-emphasize that this morning, and I'll get off my soapbox. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's read verses 1 through 5. Now, I would remind you, brothers... That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. We're in this series for the next few weeks called Values, and I reminded you last week that last year in January, we looked at our mission and vision. What is is the aim of the church? What what is the purpose for which God has left the church in the world? And I think that's to glorify Him and to make Him known. Obviously, that's a a great summary. Uh, You can listen to last week's sermon or last January's sermons if you want more info on that, And, and that our vision as a church is to, uh, to take the gospel out to the world around us. Now, um, I said without any criticism whatsoever, it's just the, the natural uh, state of things, that churches tend either to, to be disciple-making churches or evangelistic churches. And I don't think it's any, I don't think there's anything wrong with being bent one way or the other, so long as you constantly remind yourself as a church that both things are necessary. Both are are the mission of the church. We're not called to make disciples or evangelize the lost. We're called to be disciples who evangelize the lost, who share the gospel with the lost, and it, and it's not a these things are not in competition. And so, what we need is to constantly remind ourselves. Uh, I, I think Trinity's bent is is towards the discipleship side of things. Uh, I certainly know that's my bent, that's how God has wired me, and so uh, I'm constantly reminding us uh, of the necessity of evangelism, and it's a reminder for you, and it's a reminder for me, and there's certainly conviction in that for me as well. Uh, last week, we looked at the value of Scripture, that it is, it is the, the top of the list of our values, not because it's the only thing that's important in the life of the church, but because it is the thing that informs all the other things in the church. Our evangelism is informed by God's word. Our fellowship is informed by God's word. Our our, uh, discipleship, our worship, all of these things are, are defined by God's word. And so we want to keep God's word at the forefront of what we do. And these values, like scripture last week and like the gospel, which we'll talk about this week. These are designed to shape all of the ministries of the church. And so, um, while every single thing that, that Trinity does, um, for example, um, we're, should there be enough snow, and it's we're, we're, probably is, um, Jennifer's like, hey, let's have hot chocolate and uh, sledding while the kids are out of school tomorrow. We're not going to pause sledding tomorrow to be like, all right, kids. We we need to have a sermon now. It's not to say that there has to be preaching in everything we do, but that there should be, um, that 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 should be part of all of our ministries. Our kids' ministries aren't just going to be fun. Our youth ministries aren't just going to be fun. If they're not fun, something's wrong. But they're going to be more than fun. Um, I I had a parent literally come into my office when I was a youth pastor one time and say, stop teaching my kids the Bible. Your job is to entertain them until they're old enough to understand it. I worked with only high school students at that point. It's, It's not the way we're gonna be. God's word is going to be present in, in all of our ministries. And, and with God's Word, as we teach God's Word, and, and as we go about these ministries, we want to constantly uphold the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important in the church than the gospel. It's the treasure that we uphold. Notice Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, "'For I delivered to you as of first importance.'" The gospel that Jesus lived in accordance with the scriptures and died in accordance with the scriptures and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Notice the in accordance with the scriptures. We covered that last week. But it is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance in the, high, in the church. It is the highest priority. And of course, it's the first priority. You have to believe that first, right? Like it's, it's the first thing. I, I believe in Jesus and who he is, but then we move on to other things. We, we move on to maturity. And, and it w- certainly would be true that the gospel is the first thing we hear and believe as we become part of the church. But I think there's more than that going on here. I think Paul is indicating for us that the gospel, and we'll define it here shortly, is, is not something that we move on from. It's something that we grow up in. When, when Paul uh, and, and other places tell us uh, that we are to, uh, to grow up into maturity, to grow up in the faith, it doesn't mean moving beyond the gospel. And, and how do we know that? Well, notice what Paul does in a couple of ways. First off, we see that here he is writing to a church, reminding them of the gospel, he's not writing this letter to unsaved people. This is not evangelism. He is reminding believers of what is first priority. But notice that he also, in verses 1 and 2, says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, that's the past tense, you received the gospel. You heard of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and you received it. You believed it. You trusted it. But also, it's in which you stand. It's not something they've moved on from or moved out of. They heard it, they received it, and now they're remaining in it. There's an abiding in the gospel that is necessary. And then there's this, and by which you are being saved. This is not to say that, that they're not uh, forgiven It is to say that they're not yet, and if you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, this becomes very obvious, free from sin. They're not yet free from sin, and the gospel is still at work in them if they hold fast to the word that was preached. There is a a necessary standing, staying in the gospel. Is anybody else hearing that ringing, or is that just me? It's like feeding back. Maybe maybe you could help with that or something. It's a little distracting. I'm sorry. Um, so notice, notice first that Paul's reminding them of the gospel. And then he's telling them that they're, they're staying in it. They're to stand in it. And why? Because they are still being saved. Still in the process of being saved from that sin. And then... He says something that that I think many of us often forget. And one of the conversations I like to have with people who are getting baptized is that their their baptism is not the assurance of their salvation. Baptism certainly is a, a public proclamation of one's faith. It is a welcoming from the church of somebody into the body of Christ. But what, biblically, is presented to us as the evidence of salvation? It is the holding fast to the word preached. Because Paul says, you're being saved, you're standing in the gospel and being saved if you hold fast to To the word I preach to you. And what happens if you don't hold fast? He tells us, unless you you believed in vain. To have a saving faith, or to have a a faith in the gospel that is a saving faith, is a faith that that will remain. It, It is a faith that holds fast. To Jesus, I'm I'm going through the the book of Hebrews at the Christian Aid Center, and one of the this is a a a symbol they all get, and uh, we were we're talking about the book of Hebrews, and I I think it's in one of the very first Pirates of the Caribbean uh, movies. Uh, There's there's one of I think that's what movie it is. I can't remember, but there's um, there's one of the sailors on the boat who has tattooed on his fingers, hold fast. And the idea, obviously, is, is evident that you, you hang on for dear life. Saving faith holds fast. It hangs on for dear life. Hebrews chapter three, verse six. "Christ is faithful over God's house uh, as a son, and we are His house if indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope." Uh, Hebrews 3:14. For we, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original conf, uh, confidence firm to the end. The, the evidence of our salvation doesn't come at the beginning of our walk with Christ. It comes at the end. When we have held fast, that doesn't mean there are not times of wavering. But it does mean that the overall pattern of those who have genuinely come to Christ, who are standing in faith, who have received the gospel as first priority, who are being saved by it, they they hold fast their confession firm to the end. And how do we hold fast? We receive the gospel and then... We stand in it. We we live in it. It's the air that we breathe as a church. And so, whereas we saw last week that the Word of God is the priority of the church, the gospel is the preeminent message of the church. We never outgrow it. We never move on from it. We simply grow up in it. Well, what is the gospel? First, it is simply good news. Uh, the, the word evangelism comes from the Greek word for gospel, which is uh, euangelion. It, it, it simply is it's a compound word. Eu, meaning good, and angelion really comes from the word angelos, which is where we get our word angel. And angelos is a message. It is a good message. It is good news. To, to evangelize is to be a good messenger. And so it is first and foremost good news. Secondly, it is not four books of the Bible. Now let me clarify. Yes, we call those four books of the Bible Gospels, but that's not what we mean when we talk about the gospel. The, the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John simply means the good message of Matthew, the good message of Mark, the good message of John. Uh, they are good messages because they contain the gospel. So it is good news. And thirdly, it is what the church is to uphold at all times. It is the message that should be contained. In all things, Okay, Logan, can we get to the point? What is the gospel? Well, the easiest way to sum up the gospel is in four points. We'll look at them today with a couple of sub-points. And this is not original to me. I got this from, uh, from Mark Dever. But, but the four things that I think are easiest, some of the easiest ways to help us remember, and I'll just give all four of them to you now. So if you're taking notes, here's one, two, three, four, all at once. God, man, uh. I I think I just typed that wrong. Let me check my notes. Uh, Yeah, Jesus response. I did type it wrong in my notes. God, man, Jesus response. It's important to note as we continue these four things that sum up the gospel that, that this message, this gospel message, this good news, it matters both inside and outside the church. The gospel is to shape not only the message we take to the world, It is to shape the message and the ministries of the church. And that's why we're talking about it in this values series. Because the values, as we we think of them, they shape ministry inside Trinity. But it's also going to be for the world. It's going to be how we define evangelism. Um, When we deliver food to schools, it's not evangelism. Because it doesn't contain the message of God, man, Jesus' response. It's community service, and that matters. Hopefully, it buys us some currency to be able to share the gospel in places. But the gospel is going to shape our ministries inside the church and outside the church. It's going to define what we we call evangelism and what we call community service, but it's also going to shape what we do as a church. So let's look at these four things. Number one, God. Obviously, a ton could be said about who God is. Uh, we, we simply do not have enough time in one sermon or one lifetime or even one eternity. Think about that for a moment. Eternity is not enough time to fully explore the riches of an infinite God. He'll never become boring to us. We'll never one day in heaven go, oh, got them all figured out now. It won't be enough time. And so I'm not going to attempt even to, uh, to, to define everything there is about God, but what we need to understand about God in in re- regards to the gospel is that God is our holy creator. Let's look first at the idea of creator, uh, 1A on your outline. God is creator, Genesis 2-7. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. He is our maker. I cannot under or overemphasize the importance of this. He is our maker, therefore he is our purpose giver. He is our maker, therefore he wrote the manual on, on, on how to operate our lives, what is good for us and what is bad for us. Here's one of the big things. He is our maker, therefore he is our definer. He defines us. I, I think it's really easy to look at the culture, this goes back to what we're talking about on Sunday nights, and go, how in the world did we get to this place where people believe that they can define their own identities? They could be a male and call themselves a female. They could be a female and call themselves a male. We've seen white people identifying as black people. We've seen people identify as cats and any other kind of thing. We did this. This didn't show up in a vacuum. Romans 1 is pretty clear that when we abandon the image of God as creator and explain our creation in terms of natural things, the, the end result, just, just read Romans 1 and you will read the history of America for the last 70 years. What happens when we begin to define ourselves in naturalistic terms is we remove the idea of creator and then there is no definer. What we see today working out in our culture is the logical end to what we've done for the last 70 years. Why do I say that? Maybe it helps us throw less stones. I don't know. Maybe it helps us to understand how we got here. Maybe it helps us understand how to, how to talk to people in a way about who God is and, and why he gets to, to define us. But we're, we're not self-defined. We're God-made. We're God-purposed. We're God-defined. God is our creator. He's the ultimate cause of all things. He's not only creator, but he's holy. He's holy. One B. One B. The word holy in either testament, whether you're considering Hebrew or Greek, simply means set apart. Uh, From Isaiah to Revelation, that's what it means. Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 3. This is Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The length of a king's train on his robe indicated the extent of his authority so the idea that this the train of his robe filled the temple is an image that his authority is absolute and over all things above him stood the seraphim this is a, a type of angel it means fiery ones Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This is an incredible humility in the presence of God. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the same thing we see heaven and the elders, uh, the elders of, uh, of Israel and the church. That's why there's 24 of them. The, Representative of the, the 12 tribes of Israel and the disciples. Basically, the picture of these, uh, of these elders in, in heaven is just the, the fullness of God's people from all time. They bow before God and say, Holy, holy, holy. It is the message of heaven. Now, typically, we, we think of the idea of holiness about God only in regards to sin, and that's true. It is absolutely a reference to sin. But I think Scripture has much more in mind when it calls God holy than just to say that He's sinless and set apart from sin. He is set apart from everything in every way. He's set apart from time and space and matter. That's all part of his creation. He's creator, and everything else is creature. He and he alone is the only thing exists that is self-defined. And by self-defined, I don't mean Made, he's made up his own identity. I mean, he's defined by who he is. Everything else flows out of him and therefore is defined by him. He is the only one who is defined by his own character. We're all defined by God. We could go on and on. Whatever way you can think of, whatever you can think of that's true about God, he's set apart from us either uh, Absolutely, like he's alone, creator, and we are alone, creation or solely creation, or just in terms of degree. That, whatever it is to be created in the image of God, which we're about to, uh, to, talk about about man. It's only a small picture of who God is. He is wholly different than everyone and everything. The message of the gospel starts with God as our holy creator. And then it moves to man. It moves to man. That we are valuable, A, as image bearers. That mankind, all of mankind is valuable, As image bearers. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Whatever it means biblically to be male is is true somehow or reflective of something that's true about God. Whatever it means to be female biblically is is reflective of something that is true of God. That's why I think when he says this, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. There is a himness to God and there is a themness to God. Just go ask the kids. Truly God, truly man. Three, We sang this morning, our God is three in one. All of what it means to be male or female is, is true of God. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I don't think Genesis is silent. And I think this is something that maybe we reduce a little as well. But some of the explicit things we see in Genesis is that, that we're created in God's image by being given authority over creation. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that we're rational, that we're able to communicate, that we're moral, that we're spiritual. All of these things not, not true, uh, in, at least in, in the same way, about the rest of creation. We are valuable as image bearers. And sin has not removed that value, by the way. I was just reading in Genesis uh, this week, Moses, or Moses, Noah gets on the ark, the flood comes, uh, Everybody's killed. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives get off the boat. And what's the first thing God says? If someone sheds man's blood, his blood is to be shed by man because people are created, I'm paraphrasing obviously, in the image of God. Immediately after sin enters the equation and God punishes that sin, he reminds us that even in our sinfulness, we are still created in the image of God. It's a broken image for sure. But people, no matter the degree to which they are sinners, are valuable as image bearers. I think it's important to distinguish between the idea of being valuable as image bearers and worthy as image bearers. Valuable uh, that, let me start with worthy. Worthy speaks to one's deservedness. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. If we deserved it, it wouldn't be grace and it wouldn't be mercy. The message of the Bible isn't that we're worthy of God's salvation. The message of the Bible is that Christ was worthy, we're about to get there, in our place. And so we don't go around saying that we're worthy of God's grace, we're worthy of God's forgiveness. But but value, well, it speaks to exactly that. People created in God's image have an inherent value. And we might even say an inherent worth, but that's not what worthy usually means. People, all people, are valuable as image bearers of God. And all people, no matter how sinful they become, and that's our next point, we are inherently sinful. All people are valuable as image bearers. And are deserving of being treated with the respect and dignity that an image bearer of God deserves. Even though we're inherently sinful. Romans 3.23, point B under 2. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, everyone except Jesus is inherently sinful and deserving of God's punishment. And that brings us to the next point. As we think about the gospel, we want to speak of the fact that God is holy creator, that man is valuable yet sinful, sinful yet valuable maybe. Uh, And thirdly, we want to talk about Jesus. Again, there can be a ton said here as truly divine, eternity will not be enough to understand him either. But let's look quickly at three important doctrines. A is sinless life. We need to understand that Jesus lived a sinless life. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's been tempted and tried in the same way as we are, having become one of us, truly God, who became truly man. He understands what it's like to live in the world that we live in. But the only way that Jesus can take our punishment for us, that we deserve for our sin, because Romans 3.23 says we're all sinners, and Romans 6.23 says we all deserve death because of it. The only way he can take our punishment is if he's not guilty. If he's guilty, then he pays his punishment, not ours. He can't pay our debt if he owes one. So we first have to understand that Jesus lived a sinless life. Secondly, we have to understand that he offered himself up to a substitutionary death. A substitutionary death. There's nothing fancy about this word. A substitute is somebody who stands in place of another person. When a teacher can't be in the classroom, a substitute is... When we can't pay the debt of death that we owe, we need a substitute. We need somebody who as truly God can die in our place, or as truly man can die in our place, but as truly God can offer a valuable enough payment to save us all. He went to the cross as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. He knew no sin. It means he was treated like a sinner so that I don't have to be. Jesus was treated as though he had lived the life I've lived so that I can be treated as though I get the reward he deserves. He took our place in death and in condemnation. And this, this is a doctrine that's come under attack recently. There's been guys, well-known uh, evangelical, maybe not so much anymore authors, who have written about the idea that, that Jesus' death was to take our punishment is more like paganism than anything we find in the Bible. But guess what? And and the attempt is to maximize God's love. And I think the end result is all we do is minimize God's love. We don't maximize God's love by denying his wrath towards sin. We maximize his love by pointing out the fact that though he was the one who was angry at our sin, he is the one who saved us from his own wrath by dying in our place. That's how we maximize the love of God. We don't deny his wrath. We herald it. And, and we herald the fact that though he was the one angry at our sin, he took our place. I think there's a, maybe a cultural moment here that, that might allow us to speak the gospel into people's lives. Whether they receive it or not is not up to us. But we're we're seeing a desperate cry for justice in the world today. And and in God's wrath and in his sending his son to, to die in our place, we see both the love of God in dying in our place and the justice of God as he doesn't remove the penalty for our sin, but rather takes it as our substitute in death. And lastly, his victorious resurrection, which is all of what 1 Corinthians 15 is about. So if we move to the end of chapter 15, verse 54, we see that when the perishable puts on the imperishable, that is, After we've died and been resurrected, our our spirits are in heaven and our bodies too. The mortal puts on immortality. What's prone to death now will be immortal in heaven. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. How do we know that Jesus has the power to offer us life? How do we know that he succeeded in his mission to live a holy life and to to die in our place? Because we can see in the resurrection that he has the power to swallow up death in victory. As one author said, we see the death of death in the death of Christ. It's a vindication of his success, and it is evidence of his power to save and to offer life. And so that's God, that's man, that's Jesus, and now response. How do we respond to these two things? These two points, I'll just give them to you now, faith and repentance, they are synonymous. They're the same thing looked at from a different angle. First, there is faith. This is to to believe it is, uh, the, the, the best idea, I think, of this is to trust. John three sixteen. Now, this is a verse that is often confused. Let's see if we can unconfuse it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Two words bring so much confusion to this verse. So... And whoever, or whosoever. The word so in Greek means thusly. What does thusly mean? It means in this manner. It's indicating to us that there was a manner, not a measure, in which God loved the world. The measure comes next. For God loved the world in this manner that he gave his only son. That's where we see the extent of God's love. How much does he love us? Not so much. He loves us enough to give us his son. And the word whoever, well, it doesn't even exist in Greek. What we get is a a participle, which can be a little difficult to translate, but it's a It's a verb that's used like a a noun. It's used subjectively. What that means is, let let me read to you John 3.16 in a, a little bit of a confusing way, but how it would read to a Greek reader. For in this manner God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that the believing ones in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John's statement is, that God loved the world in a manner which involved giving His Son so that the believing ones, whoever believes, just simply a, a statement that those who believe, they will not perish, but they will have eternal life. This is what it means to have faith. It is to be believing in Him. To, to be trusting in his life and his death and his resurrection not our own John's big point in John 3:16 is that we have to trust Jesus and not ourselves the other way of looking at this idea of faith is repentance It's the same thing, but it's looked at from the other side. In other words, when we turn to Jesus, we turn from sin. To turn uh, towards Jesus is to, by nature or naturally, turn away from the old life that we lived. Our our lives are on this hell-bound course, and somebody comes along and tells us about God, man, and Jesus, and our response, and we say, all of these things that i am pursuing they they're not going to get me what is ultimately satisfying i'm going to turn to jesus And so faith is looked at from the heavenly side of what we turn towards, and repentance is looked at from the earthly side, what we turn away from. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38, this is at Pentecost. The disciples have been hiding in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They go out and they preach in all these languages to to people. And it says in verse 37, after they had preached the gospel, the good news, When they heard this, that is the people, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn away from your sin and towards the one who you just heard about. Interestingly, just to unconfuse this verse, uh, the word for for here regarding baptism, it doesn't mean with the result that. Peter isn't saying repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, with the result of the forgiveness of your sins. This word, this particular construction means here, means on the occasion of, which means what Peter is saying is repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, on the occasion of the forgiveness of your sins. He's telling them, repent and you will be forgiven. And once you're forgiven, then be baptized. There's no indication in the language of this verse that Peter believed that baptism resulted in forgiveness. Quite the opposite, in fact. What he seems to be saying here, I think pretty clearly, is that you get baptized on the occasion that you have received forgiveness, not with the result that you have received forgiveness. So there's God, our holy creator. There's man, sinful yet valuable. There's Jesus. Truly God and truly man who lived the perfect life for us, died for us, and was resurrected for us. In accordance, First Corinthians 15, with the scriptures. And there's the response. We turn from our sin and we trust the Savior. What do we do with all of this stuff? Let me bring this thing to an end. First, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself every day that you're not worthy of God's grace, but that you're valuable as his child. But but the gospel isn't something we move on from. It is something in which we stand. Second, expect everyone in the church to preach it. And I mean, hold us accountable to it. I'm serious. If you hear teaching at Trinity that doesn't include the gospel, and I mean clarity on the gospel, and that's what we're going to talk about next. If you hear a message that could be preached in in a Jewish synagogue here in town, or in the Mormon church up the street, you call us out on it. I did it last week, by the way. Sometimes we fail. I, I did not clarify the gospel in my sermon last week. And, and that was a failure of, uh, on my part. Third, expect it to be clarified. What do I mean by expect it to be clarified? When, when you hear the gospel taught, you should not only hear things like trust Jesus or believe the gospel. Because what does it mean to trust Jesus? What does it mean to believe the gospel? I honestly think we should entirely abandon the language of ask Jesus into your heart. It's meaningless language. Yes, Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that, that Christ would dwell in our hearts richly through faith. But the context of that is, is pretty different. You should hear things like, trust the holy life of Jesus and his death in your place for the forgiveness of sins. we got to clarify what we're asking people to believe. It's not enough to simply say trust Jesus or believe the gospel or become a Jesus follower. Those aren't enough. Expect it to be clarified What do we have to trust about Jesus? What do we have to believe about the gospel? Fourthly, tell somebody about it. Tell somebody about a holy God and sinful man and Jesus' life and death and resurrection and how we can be forgiven of our our sin if we respond in faith. All of us know enough to be able to do that. See, everything we do at Trinity, it's like a ring. There was this company in Beaverton when I lived over in that part of the world called Shane Company. And, and the deal with Shane Company, at least I think it was Shane Company, is that you would go and you would pick out a ring, like an engagement ring, but it had no rock in it. You picked the setting first, and then you picked the stone to go in it. And there was different sizes and shapes and, uh, you know, what is it? Cut, color, clarity, carat. Something like that, uh, the four C's that go into picking a diamond. Uh, you picked the setting and then you picked the rock and, and then they made the whole thing. Well, our ministries, our programs, the thing we do, Awana, adult Bible fellowships, growth groups, music, everything we do at this church, it's all setting. It's all setting, and it's all designed to uphold and to show off the beauty of the gemstone of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything exists, everything we do exists to show that off, and not just in this room, but in the world we live in. I was just reading Matthew chapter 9 earlier this week, and I'm going to close there, and we'll be done if the music team wants to go ahead and come on up for the sake of time, I would encourage you to head this way. Matthew chapter 9, right at the end. um, Jesus says, says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel, the good message of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, listen carefully to this, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers Into his harvest. Brothers and sisters, we have the good news and we are the good messengers. May you and I never, ever be part of the reason why the laborers in the harvest are few. Heavenly Father, we don't just want to pray that you would send out laborers. We pray that you would send us out. You have not given us a spirit of weakness and timidity to fall back into fear, but of boldness. May we own our identities as bold, good messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ. And may we have compassion for the lost like you did.